Uh, to, today is my wife's favorite holiday of the year. Absolutely your favorite. Why is that? Extra hour of sleep. Absolutely. She looks forward to this day every year. So. Yeah, parents not so much. Well, the one in the springtime, not definitely not so much. I think I have to turn this thing on. All right. Good morning. My name's David. Um, what I'd like to do this morning is look at a, a few passages um, that deal with the subject of prayer. And if you turn in your Bibles, please, uh, beginning in Matthew chapter 5, uh, we're just going to consider a few thoughts on prayer. This will not be an exhaustive treatise on prayer, but uh, in, in some ways, just kind of a series of devotional thoughts. It's funny, coming back here to this assembly, um, uh, as some of you with uh, probably more in the, in, the, in the golden years group remember our brother Herb McCauley. And uh, I remember sitting on uh, Herb's porch many years ago. I had the opportunity of spending a lot of time in that household. And, um, and Herb talking to me on the porch about prayer, how he said, for many years, just prayer just kind of just didn't seem to be that important to him. He didn't get it, right? God's sovereign. God's going to do whatever he wants anyway. We just have to, you know, be okay with that. But you see, that isn't what Scripture teaches, right? And here we are in Matthew's uh, Gospel, and uh, from uh, Matthew chapter 4 to the end of chapter 7 is a, a portion of Scripture that is referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And... Um, Right at the end of chapter 3, it, it talks about what Jesus is doing um, as, as his uh, public ministry is initiated. It says he goes around and he preaches the gospel of the kingdom. And this is the message he preached. 4 to 7 is, is the gospel of the kingdom. This is the message he would preach as he would go town to town. And so we know uh, from the other gospels, because there's elements of this same sermon in the other gospels, it's clear that um, the essence of this message was sort of the thing that Jesus shared more than once. And um, we're not going to go back and look at it precisely. Uh, you guys can do that. But at the beginning of chapter 4, it says Jesus is preaching here, at the Sermon on the Mount, not to the multitudes, but he's preaching to his disciples. Now, he hasn't named or selected the twelve so far. So what, what is meant in the context by he's preaching to his disciples are those who are seriously minded about following him. They're not the hangers-on. They're not the casual observers. They're not the merely curious. They are the disciples of Jesus, the ones who were serious in their um, desire to follow him. And that's who this sermon is directed to in the context. In, the, in this Sermon on the Mount... Um, Jesus is going to refer to prayer twice, very, very directly, at least twice. You could probably make a couple of the connections. But I want to look at um, those two uh, kind of briefly and, and, and just get a couple of key thoughts from each of those two instances. And then we're going to end up in the book of Acts. Um, we can safely assume at some point, maybe not at this one that we're going to look at in Matthew, but the 12 disciples the 12 disciples, heard Jesus preach this message. It's probably safe to assume that. Right? And so when we get to Acts, we're going to see two of those disciples in particular, how they remembered and responded to the Lord's teaching. So since we're going to do a message on prayer, we should probably start by praying. Right? Let's commit our time to the Lord. 
Father, we thank you so much for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you so much uh, that we can sing, we've been redeemed. We thank you again uh, that uh, because we have been redeemed by your Son, uh, we have no condemnation. We fear nothing from you. We thank you, Lord, for this amazing place that you've put us in. And we ask now that as we look into your scripture and consider again the words of your Son, that your Spirit would use his words in our hearts and minds and change us to be a little bit more like him. Lord, we commit this time um, to your use. We pray in the name of your wonderful Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So let's look at uh, Matthew chapter 6. And I'm in Acts, so I need to get to Matthew. Matthew chapter 6, and again, the Lord preaching here, the Sermon on the Mount, and beginning in verse 5. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, he's speaking to disciples, but thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father, which is in secret, and thy Father, which sees in secret, shall reward you openly. The Lord makes this distinction here, and just uh, in very general terms, I just want to point our attention to a couple of points. The Lord says this about prayer. It is to be done in sincerity. In sincerity. The Lord makes a point to pointing out that there there are folks who pray who are not sincere in their prayer. How do you know that? Because they do it in such a way that they would receive the praise of men. They want to do it publicly, um, on a street corner, in the, in the, where they're going to be noticed. And they may even use big flowery speech and try to sound very impressive. And the Lord, <coughs> excuse me, the Lord says, if, if in your heart your desire is to impress men, that's all you'll get from your prayer. Because God's not impressed. God's not impressed. So here's principle number one in prayer. It it, it needs to be offered in sincerity. Principle number two I would see here is it needs to be offered in intimacy. Jesus says this to his disciples. Pray to your father, your, your Abba. The one with whom you have an intimate relationship with. The one whom loves you, and you love him. Is that my attitude in prayer? Is my attitude in prayer in sincerity and intimacy with God? Let's keep reading. Verse 7, but when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Do you guys see that verse? It is amazing to me that in Christendom there are canned prayers that are just chanted. I, I don't, I mean, do we cut this verse out of some, I, I, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Now, it's not to say that there are not beautiful prayers written that are worth reading and meditating on and gleaning from. Absolutely true. 
Um, many of the Psalms, uh, brother read this morning from the book of Ephesians. Uh, chapter one is essentially, uh, there's more than half of it is a prayer, right? But it was never recorded for us to just re- memorize and just repeat like it's some sort of magic chant. And that somehow God will pay attention to us the more time we chant it. Jesus says this quite plainly right here, right? I really get convicted about this, though. Because, you see, it's easy to point to someone else and go, shame on them. You see, and then I bow before a meal and I just rattle off the same three sentences that I've said for the last 30-plus years without a whole lot of thought and dig in. You see, there's different ways that that gets applied, right? First principle is pray in sincerity. Second is pray in intimacy. Here's another principle. Be genuine. Be genuine in your prayer. The overall context here, right, is Jesus expects his disciples to pray. That's that's the deal, right? They should be people of prayer. These disciples, these citizens of the kingdom. Verse 8, Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knows what things you have need before you even ask. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or the evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. For if ye forgive men their trespass, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men your trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So again, as we read these verses, we don't want to say that this is, um, every prayer has to be this prayer. This is an example, a type, that the Lord Jesus gives to his disciples. And, and books have been written, and many sermons have been spoke on, on this, uh, what, what is called the Lord's Prayer, but what would be more appropriately called the Disciples' Prayer. Um, if you want the Lord's Prayer, go to John 17. That's the Lord praying all the way through that chapter. right? And, and so we see the different elements that are part of this prayer. We see worship and adoration and petition. And, and we can go and dissect those things and, and, and learn a lot from it. But this is, this is not Jesus saying every prayer should look exactly like this. And how do we know that? Well, we have other scripture to back that up, right? Not every prayer in scripture looks exactly like this, Old and New Testament. We have uh, one, of, one of my favorite prayers is the prayer that Nehemiah prayed as he was called before the king. He didn't pray like this, right? He says a quick, Lord, help. <laughs> right? Yeah. But this is a general sort of a, a uh, if, if I can say this reverently, somewhat of the mechanics of prayer. <laughs> Look how it starts. Our Father, same as he had instructed back in verse 5 and 6, our Father who art in heaven, understanding something about who you're praying to. There's that intimacy of relationship and that God sits in heaven, the place that is separate from the place that we know, a place that is unstained with sin. And it says, um, hallowed be your name. That's, a, that's sort of a weird word, hallowed. We don't, it's not a word that we use a lot. We just celebrated, well, celebrate. We just observed. We just had a day that we call Halloween. I don't know what they guys did here, but they canceled it 
in our neck of the woods, and they moved it to yesterday because the weather was so bad. You didn't know you could do that with a, with a holiday. Just cancel it and move it a couple of days, right? What does it mean? What does Halloween mean? What does hallowed mean? It means holy. And so in this, in this uh, King James translation where it says, let, uh, hallowed be your name, it, 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 another way you could render that is, let your name be held holy. Let your name be held holy. And, and the idea is that I would do that in my heart. God, as I'm approaching you in heaven, I understand that your name is holy. Right? And so um, we, don't, we don't have the time to, to spend a lot of time here in, in this prayer. But we see all these elements. And then we have this interesting thing at the end where Jesus calls his disciples' attention specifically to the topic of forgiveness. Now, again, we know in the disposition of Scripture um, that these last verses that when Jesus says, if, if, if you forgive others, your sins will be forgiven. Um, but if you don't forgive others, your sins won't be forgiven. That, that can't be in the context of uh, forgiveness unto salvation. Okay? But the fullness of that revelation has not been made. And so he's, pe- he's speaking to disciples. And he's saying, listen, if, if you don't forgive your brothers and sisters, how do you expect to have a relationship with their God and your God? How do you think that's going to work? How could it possibly work? Right? We can go and look in Scripture of other um, ways this is, is played out, uh, but we know in, in 1 Peter, one of the instructions that Peter gives the husbands is to live with their wives with understanding. Why? That your prayers be not hindered. Husbands, have you ever been frustrated with your wife? You ever been frustrated with wife and take it out on your wife? You know what God says about that? You're going to have a problem with your prayer life if you don't get right with your wife. Right? And so again, here's just some general, some general principles. Turn over a page to Matthew chapter 7. Uh, beginning in verse 7, the Lord Jesus is, is going to speak now towards um, not so much the mechanics of prayer, um, but more towards the attitude of prayer. Verse 7, ask and it shall be given to you, seek and ye shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asks receives, and he that seeks finds, and to him that knocks it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you whom if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? I'm so glad that the Lord uses very, very clear analogies for us to understand. Verse 7, Ask, and it shall be given. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. There's three uh, action words there, the three verbs, ask, seek, and knock. And in the Greek, those are all in, um, the tense of the verbs are imperatives. They are commands. They are not suggestions. Jesus is not saying, listen, if you get around to it or you think of it and you might want to pray, go ahead and pray. That's not what he's saying. He's commanding his disciples to ask. He's commanding his disciples to seek He's commanding his disciples to knock. All right? 
The verbs are in the imperative present continuous tense. So some of your translations may read this way, ask and keep on asking, seek and keep on seeking, knock and keep on knocking. That is the disciples' attitude is to be in prayer. Wonderfully, verse 8, the tense of the verse in in verse 8, for everyone that asks receives, and he that seeks finds, and him that knocks it shall be opened. The tense of the verbs in in that verse are, um, I forget the Greek, not that it matters because most of us don't speak ancient Greek anyway. But the idea behind it is this. The answer is so sure, it's like it's already happened. God's response to a disciple who prays the way they did in verse 7, his response is going to be so sure that right now it's like it's already happened. That's how certain it is, how God will respond to that type of prayer. So one of the attitudes that the Lord Jesus is displaying in in, in here in this section, and if we skip down to uh, verse 11, that whole idea of, do you remember who you're praying to? We in our relationships amongst each other, right? Parents don't typically, don't treat their children cruelly, right? If, if, if your child has something that they need, you, you would provide that need. It, it talks about it's food, right? What typical loving parent wouldn't deny their child something to eat? If you, being evil or affected by sin, know enough intrinsically to treat your child with love, how much more do you think God knows how to treat you? Again, I love the analogies that the Lord uses. Ask, seek, knock, and do it persistently, faithfully. With perseverance. Knowing the one whom you're asking loves you. You know, I was thinking back when I was a kid, and um, I, I, I loved Lucky Charm cereal. Did you know they're magically delicious? They are. And I would eat Lucky Charm cereal at every opportunity I could. My mom, who loved me, had to, at times, say, Dave, now is not the time. You're not having a bowl of cereal at 10 o'clock right before you go to bed. It's not the time. In love, she would say no. Sometimes our Father in Heaven, in love, says no, or now is not the right time, or wait. He's, He's not being cruel. He's not being unkind. He's acting in love, similar to my mom would do, because she she knew better than me. My God knows better than me. You ever feel like that, that sometimes you know better than God? God, I wouldn't have done it that way. You ever hear yourself thinking that? Yeah. Scary thought, right? Scary thought. Ask. Seek. Knock. Knock. It's interesting, the whole idea of knocking on a door. Why would you knock on a door? Would you knock on a door, let's say 
let's say you're going to someone's house. Would you knock on the door? Would it make sense to knock on a door that you knew was empty? No! Makes no sense at all. Why do you knock on a door? You have an expectation and a hope that there's somebody on the other side who's going to hear and answer. Right? Otherwise, knocking on a door is an exercise in futility and, quite frankly, insanity. Jesus says this to his disciples, knock like somebody is going to answer the door. Right? And sometimes you can knock lightly. And sometimes... A little louder, a little more persistently. Right? That is to be our attitude in prayer. Right? Don't give up. Don't give up. Have that right attitude. I'm talking to, I'm asking my Father who loves me in heaven. He loves me. quite likely that Peter and John, two of the Lord's disciples, heard the Lord preach the sermon. And probably more than once, right? Turn over, if you would, to Acts chapter 4. I was glad to hear uh, somebody say this morning that their home Bible study is I think going through the book of Acts, how far are you up to? Chapter four. Oh, yes. The Spirit of God is just wonderful, right? I just love this. I love this. So, we're going to sum up a little bit because it's kind of three and four are a continuation of each other. You guys familiar with what happens in Acts chapter 3? Love this story. Come on, nod your heads, yes or no. Let me know you're not an oil painting. You all rested. You got an extra hour of sleep, all right? So there's no nodding off this morning. Acts chapter 3, wonderful chapter. Okay. Again, let's remember that Acts is a book of history. It's not a book of doctrine. It's a book of history. So we need to just frame it that way first as we, as we look at it. So Acts chapter 3, um, we see uh, Pentecost has happened, right? There's been the descent of the Holy Spirit. There's, just, there's been this amazing thing that has taken place in Jerusalem, right? Uh, 3,000 folks have come to Christ on day one, right? Can you imagine that, right? 3,000 people converted to the Lord Jesus Christ in one day. And so now Peter and John are coming up to the temple. It's in the afternoon. It's the hour of prayer. And there, late at the gate, before you could actually get into the temple court, there is a lame man who was born lame. And he's, he's an older fella. He's over 40 years old. And someone of his probably family members have picked this guy up and carried him and put him down at that gate um, so he can ask alms, or we would say he would beg uh, for uh, the kindness of strangers. Right? And that guy has been there for so long, li- literally for decades, that the regulars coming out of the temple, this, this guy is like part of the architecture. He's just always been there. Right? And Peter and John come up, and again, this is the Dave George version. You can read it for yourself. It's better in Scripture. But for the sake of time, I will just sum up what happens. Peter and John are coming up, and they make Peter makes eye contact with this guy. Now, have you ever made eye contact with a beggar or someone, panhandler? And there's that awkward moment. 
right? You're thinking to yourself, oh, man, I hope that, ah, he's looking right at me. And then you start patting your pockets, do I have any change? Because I, I really don't want to part with any of the foldable kind of money, right? Right, you, you think, maybe that's just me. Okay, probably is. I'm weird that way. But anyway, there's that awkward moment. And, and the scripture says that this, this guy, this lame man, looks at Peter and they make eye contact. And I, I just, I love how human this exchange is, right? They make eye contact and this guy's like, yeah, I can expect something. This guy's holding my gaze. This is a good sign. And then Peter says this, fixing his eyes upon him. I get goosebumps just thinking about this story. Silver and gold have I none. The thing that you value and the thing that you want from me, I don't have any of. Peter says, I get none of that. But such as I have, I give unto thee. In the name of Jesus Christ, arise and walk. And Peter stretches out his hand and catches the hand of that beggar and lifts him right up to his feet. And the guy who hasn't walked since birth says, is leaping and jumping for joy. And for the first time in his life, he's actually able to enter into the temple court because there's a great stigma against anyone who's handicapped, right? They're, they're considered defiled. And he's never allowed to go in. For the first time in his life, this guy gets to get closer to God. And there's a big hubbub. As there ought to be. Right? There ought to have been a parade, right? This is a big deal. We get to the first couple of verses of chapter 4. And there's this huge commotion. Peter preaches this amazing sermon, shares the gospel, because this, this event draws a crowd. And when the religious leaders find out what happened, what do they do? They join in a celebration and they worship and adore God. No, they arrest Peter and John. And they put him in prison. That's their response. Chapter 4 is the, we would call it the, the, the hearing or the trial of Peter and John. So they get called out in front of the Sanhedrin, and, and they ask, what, how did you do this? In whose name and by what authority did you do this? And Peter, once again, very clearly, shares how this man was made whole. And he says, it was through the power of the name of the Lord Jesus. Peter says, it has nothing to do with me. I didn't do this. It's all about Jesus. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. Acts 4.12. Right? And so the Sanhedrin, they are incensed because Peter reminds them that, listen, you're the... And it, ha it hasn't been that long since Christ was crucified. And Peter reminds them, you're the guys who condemned him. You set him up and had him put to death. But be that as it may, the forgiveness extends to even you, Peter says. And then there's this huddle. They, they put Peter and John off to the side and they have a huddle. Right? And we're going to pick up the huddle. We're in Acts 4, verse 16, um, saying, What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. Think about that statement. If it hadn't been a notable miracle that everybody knew about, they would have denied it that it had happened. Right? 
We can't deny something miraculous has happened. Verse 17, but that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. It's a rhetorical question. Figure that out for yourself, right? How many times has... I, I love the teachers I used to have who would... I would ask a sort of an obvious question and they'd look at me and they went, Dave, go sit back down and think for a second and then come back and tell me what the answer is, right? Should, should, should we obey God or obey you? You figure that one out. You figure that one out. Verse 20, For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Verse 21, So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them. Does that just amaze you? Folks, think about this. This dude had sat and begged, handicapped, crippled his entire life. And these guys can't even be happy for him. They are racking their brains to figure out how can we punish the men by which God did this miracle. Folks, there is an irrational hatred of Jesus Christ in this world. You see that here? There is an irrational hatred of Jesus Christ. I think it's in chapter 12 of Acts. Peter was, would, would, in, in one of his, uh, again, one of the times he's preaching, would say, Jesus Christ, a man approved by God by signs and wonders, who came among you and did good deeds and helped all that were oppressed of the devil, you, with wicked hands, slew and hung on a tree. The response of this world to Jesus Christ is irrational hatred. It's irrational hatred. John chapter 15, Jesus said this to his disciples, Listen, they hated me without a cause. And again, Dave George translation, how do you think they're going to treat you? Do you think they're going to treat you any differently than they treated me? And finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people, for all men glorified God for that which was done, for the man was above 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was showed. Verse 23, and being let go, so Peter and John are now let go from the council. They, they, all they can do is threaten them at this point. They went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said unto them. And this is just a little sidebar. There's something that, well, when I grew up um, in church, one thing that we, I think it was kind of organized. I was kind of young, so maybe I don't remember quite clearly, but I think it happened on Sunday night. There would be a testimony time. And people could share either how they had come to Christ or some work that the Holy Spirit was doing in their life at the time. i got to tell you, it was amazingly encouraging to hear from other saints how the Lord was active in their life. And Peter and John come back to, their, to the, the other Christians here in Jerusalem, and they just share what happened. They give a word of testimony. Right? 
Do you do that? Do you do that in your own family? Do you do that in your fellowship? Do, do you recognize those times in life when the Holy Spirit of God works something out in a way you didn't see coming? And you just can't help but share that with other folks. That's a, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Why? Because it's easy to get discouraged in a world that hates Jesus Christ. They hate it. And the truth is, the Holy Spirit is busy. He's busy. And there's things going on in people's lives all around us that will cause us, in a certain sense, to do what's about to happen right here. They come back and they report what has just happened. Verse 24, And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. And there's this beautiful, unifying thing that happens at the word testimony of how God has worked. It unifies his people. Brings them together. And how do they respond? And they said, and here's this prayer. And it doesn't specifically say that Peter and John are leading a prayer meeting, but it's probably they're involved. They're there for sure, but this is how they pray. There's this spontaneous combustion of a prayer meeting right here. And here's how they pray. And they said, Lord, Thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Did I speak too loudly into the microphone? Again, folks, I'm sorry, I grew up in the Herb McCauley School of Public Pre- Preaching, and I usually don't use a microphone. Now, some of your Bibles will have a note at the bottom around that word that's translated Lord, right? Through most of the New Testament, the Greek word that is used for Lord is the word, uh, Greek word kurio, and it comes from the Greek uh, root word that means supreme. Supreme. That is typically the word that is used for Lord. In this instance, however, the disciples, in response to this word of testimony, they don't use curio. They use the Greek word despotes. Despotes. We get our English word despot from that, which has a kind of a bad connotation to it. But a despot is a ruler who has unquestionable authority. You see the difference? The disciples look at what's happened and their response in their hearts is, Lord, you have amazing, unquestionable authority here. And see, the other thing that happens when they use that word despotes is they put themselves in the place of a slave. And what they are reaffirming before God is, we are ones who will do your bidding. You have unquestionable authority In the world and in our lives, we will do your bidding. And they look to God and they say, you're amazing. You have unquestionable authority. You are the God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. We recognize you as the creator, God. Verse 25, who, speaking of God, by the mouth of thy servant David has said, 
Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. What they're doing right there is they are quoting from the Old Testament. They're quoting from Psalm chapter 2. These folks knew the scriptures. Now they address God as one with unquestionable authority. They address him as the creator. So in, in, in two aspects, he owns them. As, as the one in authority and the one who created them. And then they're reminded that what they are experiencing right now, and they, let's keep reading. Um, verse 27, For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were gathered together. And they, 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 as they're praying, they think back on this verse from the Old Testament. These two verses. And they see these two verses having been fulfilled in their lifetime. They see that is exactly what happened to Jesus Christ. Both the Jews and the Gentiles collectively came against Him in opposition. And they imagined a vain thing. They thought they could put an end to Jesus by killing Him. And that didn't work out. Three days after his crucifixion, Jesus was really dead. Really died. We need, to be, we need to be clear on that. He didn't pass out. He didn't slip into a coma. He didn't swoon. He really died. He dismissed his spirit. He really died. He was really buried. He really rose from the grave. Three days later. And the vain thing that the people had imagined, the kings and the princes of this earth, came to nothing. And they see this. So, this is right around year 40. This is happening, give or take. When did, when did David write Psalm 2? Roughly a thousand years earlier. And so the disciples, thinking on the scripture, it's evident to them, God, what you said a thousand years ago, has come true. We've seen it. We've, we're living in the midst of it. That's incredible. Verse 28, For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. God, a thousand years ago, you said, men, we're going to respond this way to your Christ, to your anointed one. These folks, right, we're, we're still praying, right? They're still praying. Have they prayed anything about the situation that they're in? Hasn't come up at all. You find that curious? I find it curious when I compare how I pray. Right? They are glorifying God in their prayer. They're just glorifying God. We see you at work. We see you, a thousand years prior, knew exactly what was going to happen. We see you in control. Verse 29. And now, ah, we get to the current situation, right? And now, Lord, how do they pray? How do they pray? Do they say, Make these big poopy heads stop. 
Give them what for? No. They don't pray that at all. They don't ask the Lord to change the circumstance. They don't ask the Lord to take them out of this. Lord, behold their threatenings, is what they say. Lord, did you hear that? That's, that's, that is the sum total of how they respond to how the religious leaders and their irrational response to the healing of this man. All they do is, Lord, did, just, did you hear that? Not that he wouldn't hear it, but did you hear that? Behold their threatenings. They told us to stop doing good. They told us to stop preaching in the name of your son, the Lord Jesus. Grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. What had gotten them into trouble at this point? Speaking boldly. If we are to assume reasonably that Peter and John are there, what had happened to Peter and John in the not too distant past? On a night in a place called the Mount of Olives, when some men came, armed men, to oppose the one they knew at that point as their rabbi. Jesus. What had they done? Peter had vowed that he would lay his life down for him earlier that evening. And then the other disciples had chimed in and said, yeah, yeah, me too, me too, me too. I'd lay my life down for you too. What had they done? They ran for their lives. Mark's gospel records that one guy ran away naked. Listen, you want to get away bad if you're running away naked. How do they pray here? Lord, give us boldness. Some of your translations may render that word courage, and that's an element of it. But the, the, the Greek word that's used there has an element of courage, and it also has an element of um, non-ambiguity. Lord, help us to speak. Notice it doesn't say preach or teach. They're not talking about doing this, standing up and doing sermons to people. That's not at all what they're they're referring to. Just in the interaction of our lives, as the Holy Spirit provides opportunity, that we would speak, speak, tell forth, express with clarity and with courage. That's what that word boldness means, with clarity and with courage. No vacillating, no maybe, ha, maybe, um, if, ha, ha, ha if it works for you, because it kind of sort of works for me. No, 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 not like that. To speak with courage and with boldness. You see, Peter and John were guys who already understood their own frailty. They knew that there was a time that they had run away. And despite the fact that Peter's the guy who, by by the, the, the Holy Spirit's work, had accomplished this miracle... Peter's not resting on the laurels of, hey, this, this, whole, this whole church Jesus movement can't do without me. He, that is not his mindset at all. He's like, I, I, I'm praying for more boldness because I'm very aware of my own frailty. Boldness to do what? To speak, not his own words, to speak thy word. 
speak your word, Lord. Lord, give me help day by day, moment by moment, that I would speak your word with courage and with clarity to the world I'm in. I understand there is going to be, and they saw this, right? They saw this in the, in the thing that had happened. Um, Lord, behold, uh, verse 30, by stretching forth thy hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. They see that the response to the healing of this lame man is no different from the response of the religious leaders to Jesus. This is just an extension of the fulfillment of Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 that God knew all along about. Grant us boldness that we may speak thy word. They don't pray that the situation would be ended, that the the environment would completely alter, but that, Lord, that they would have the strength that they need going forward. If you keep reading just another couple of chapters, something similar happens, right? And, And this time, Peter and John are arrested and they're beaten up. And then they're threatened. And then if you read another couple of chapters, we're going to hear about a fellow by the name of Stephen who's murdered for his faith. These two guys, Peter and John, who had heard that Sermon on the Mount, who were, were present here in Acts, as they pray for boldness to proclaim God's word, It's not like the hardships end. Actually, quite the contrary. Peter's going to be crucified for his faith in Christ. He's going to be put to death. John, and these are from extra-biblical sources that come down to us through history. John, John, they're going to try to kill by boiling him in oil. And they're going to, the Lord's going to miraculously spare his life. But John's going to be maimed. And when he is exiled to the island of Patmos, that one strong fisherman is a guy whose body is scarred and broken by the irrational and violent opposition of the world to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Saints, how do we pray? How do we pray? Do we recognize, I'm sorry I'm going late, do we recognize, first off, who we're praying to? It's our Father. We have an intimate, intimate relationship with Him through faith in Jesus Christ. Do we pray genuinely? Genuinely. Not like I'm just reciting something that I have to do or, or fulfilling some sort of obligation. I'm supposed to pray, so therefore I will. Is there a sincerity and genuineness in our prayer life? Do I recognize the workings and the victories of the Holy Spirit, both that are happening in my life and in the lives of others? Does that cause me to be knit together with them even tighter? And what this prayer meeting here in Acts demonstrates is there's this this pointing towards glorifying God all the way through. Like glorify God. 
Is that the response of my heart to glorify God? And what specifically do I pray for? Do I pray that I would be removed from a circumstance? Do I pray that something would just would stop? And, and this, this is something that is um, rubber meets the road here, right? Rubber meets the road here. I remember sitting um, at camp Parkside many years ago. And uh, there was a brother there who knew that my wife and I had a handicapped child. And he looked at me, he goes, should we pray that your son would be healed? And it's funny because I had never thought that thought before. You know, and first, you know, the idiot male analytical part of me kicked in going, how, how like, his DNA is broken and every cell in his body, how would that, how would that be possible? <laughs> right, idiot mechanical sort of thinking, right? But then I thought to myself, God gave me my son this way. Should I really be asking him to change that? Would the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, for the disciples' perspective, should it, be, should it have been, Lord, make sure nothing bad happens to Jesus? You see, folks, if we don't, if we don't understand Scripture and understand or, or, or know Scripture and know something about the heart and the love of God, we can um, do the opposite of what Jesus prayed in the garden. He prayed, Father, let your will be done here as it is in heaven, right? Sometimes we pray, and I don't know who's the person who said this, but we pray that my will is done here and I want it done in heaven as well, right? You see, for the, for the disciples in the garden to pray that nothing bad would happen to Jesus would actually be praying contrary to the expressed, written-down will of God. Right? They would have prayed contrary to that. So how do we view our own circumstances? How, how, how do you pray when I have a... I have a um, my wife's cousin, she's 43. She's been diagnosed with inoperable cancer. She's going to die. I want her to be okay. But does the fact that she has cancer come as a surprise to God? She's a believer. She's a believer. The disciples here prayed ultimately that God would be glorified in the circumstance that they were in. Not that they would be excused or delivered or brought out of the circumstance, but that whatever happened, that God would be glorified. And folks, that's the same mindset that when you get to Philippians chapter 2, and, and Paul, who is chained to a wall when he writes this, says this, and again, the Dave George translation, whether I live or whether I die doesn't matter to me anymore. What matters to me is that Christ is glorified. And if he's glorified in my life, fantastic. And if he's glorified in my death, that's even better. How do I pray? How do you pray? My apologies for going late. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your son. We thank you, even as we, uh, we rejoice this morning, that in him we have life and we have hope. We thank you again that he was delivered for our transgressions and he was raised again for our justification. 
Lord, we thank you for this life that you have brought us to. And we see again in Scripture that it's not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble who know you and are known by you, but just ordinary folk like us who through your tremendous grace and mercy have come to know you as our Redeemer, our Savior, and are able to call you Father. We are so grateful. Lord, help us in our prayer to be sincere and genuine with you. Lord, save us from our own pride that likes to put on airs. Lord, help us to persevere and not lose heart knowing that you're a Father who loves us. Lord, I pray for any of my brothers and sisters here this morning who have been asking and seeking and knocking for a long time, and the answer hasn't come, Lord, that they would not lose heart. Lord, we thank you that you are the one who has absolute unquestioning authority, even in this weird, twisted world that we live in. And Lord, we see the heathen's rage continue. And we see the constant rejection of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we see even in our own land a a shrinking of the acceptance of preaching the gospel. Lord, give us boldness that we would speak your word. Neighbor to neighbor, family to family. Lord, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for calling us to this great salvation. We thank you again for the hope that you have given us. And we ask now, Lord, that you'd bless us as we part. We give you thanks in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.